Virginia in crisis. The top three officials, all Democrats, refused to resign. One calling for due process and denying two allegations of sexual assault. The embattled governor says he wants to atone for his past racist behavior. But will that be enough? We'll have the latest details. Plus, on the campaign trail, a growing Democratic field floods the zone in early primary states. I am in this fight all the way. Lead with love. Are voters looking for a fresh face? A mayor in the Midwest in his 30s. Democratic presidential candidate Mayor Pete Buttigieg joins us live. And deadline looming. President Trump heading to Texas to rally support for his border wall. Walls save lives. But with just days to stave off another shutdown, can lawmakers strike a deal he'll accept? We'll talk to Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney and Democratic Senator Chris Murphy in moments. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is focused on 2020. Democrats are hitting the campaign trail across the country this weekend, traveling to early primary and caucus states as two major contenders enter the race this weekend. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts officially launched her bid Saturday, challenging the system she says is rigged for the rich and calling President Trump a symptom of what's wrong in America. Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota is expected to announce she's running later this afternoon. 2020 is also clearly on President Trump's mind. Saturday, he lashed out at Senator Warren on Twitter, alluding to her past claims of Native American status, for which she has apologized. The president appeared to make a joking reference to the tragic trail of tears, relocation, and genocide of Native Americans. One unexpected issue the 2020 candidates have been forced to confront on the trail, the continued controversy surrounding the top three Officials in Virginia, all Democrats, there are now two women accusing Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax of sexual assault. And late Saturday, both women announced they would be willing to testify in any impeachment hearings. Fairfax maintains the encounters were consensual and says he should be given due process. One 2020 candidate who has had to respond to all of this on the trail, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. He's a Rhodes Scholar and Navy veteran who served in Afghanistan and who is running to make history as the youngest president ever elected and the first openly gay man to serve in that role. And he joins me now. Mayor Buttigieg, welcome to State of the Union. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with what's going on in Virginia. You've said you don't see how Lieutenant Governor Fairfax can continue to lead anymore after these two accusations, one of sexual assault, one of rape. Fairfax is calling for an investigation, adding, quote, I'm asking that no one rush to judgment, and I'm asking for there to be space in this moment for due process. What is the standard for you to call for someone to step down? Is, is the accused entitled to, to due process before he is forced to resign? Well, you're certainly entitled to due process in a criminal investigation. When it comes to the question of holding political office, I think it's really a matter of whether you can effectively lead. And when you have somebody, especially at this very sensitive time for the office of lieutenant governor, uh, when you have somebody facing multiple credible accusations. I just don't see how he can continue to serve. Meanwhile, Governor Ralph Northam is fending off his own calls to resign after he admitted to wearing blackface in 1984. He told the Washington Post yesterday that he wants to focus on racial inequality in areas such as housing and health care over the rest of his term. Is that good enough for you? Is, is, a, is a gubernatorial term of atonement and racial reconciliation good enough? Or, or do you still think he should resign? 
Well, it doesn't seem to me that he has the confidence that's required in him in order to continue to lead the state. Uh, unfortunately, the way he handled those uh, those allegations and revelations seems to have made things even worse. And I think that's why you see uh, a pretty strong sense among leaders in Virginia. And by the way, this is, of course, something for Virginians to figure out. Uh, but they seem to be pretty unified that they want a new governor and leadership that can carry that state forward. Let's talk about some issues. Several 2020 candidates are backing a new resolution which outlines what's called a Green New Deal. It was introduced by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the House and Senator Ed Markey in the Senate. This plan calls for, quote, removing pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from manufacturing and industry as much as is technologically feasible with a a, a 10-year outline. Obviously, something like that would completely overhaul industries across the Midwest, including in Indiana, do you have any concerns about how the Green New Deal might affect your constituents or your state? Well, uh, like a lot of other things that have come along and impacted us in the industrial Midwest, trade comes to mind. We've got to make sure this time around that it's done in a way that benefits us, that, that benefits workers uh, more than it harms them. Look, there's always going to be change and disruption. As a town that grew up around the auto industry producing Studebakers until the 1960s, uh, we know firsthand what those disruptions can mean. But there's also tremendous opportunity here. Uh, Look, we're not only being disrupted by economic change, we're being disrupted by climate change. We have had uh, multiple cases, two different cases of floods, historic floods here in South Bend of the kind that we're told to expect every thousand years or so, and they happened within 18 months of each other. So this is a national emergency, and the, uh, I think the elegance uh, from a policy perspective of the concept of the Green New Deal is it matches a sense of urgency about that problem of climate change with a sense of opportunity around what the solutions might represent. Even right now, one of the biggest recent announcements in our county of added union jobs in the auto industry was it a facility making electric vehicles? I think a Green New Deal would promote that. And so that could be good news for us here in the industrial Midwest. Do you endorse the Markey Ocasio-Cortez Green New Deal? Yes, I think it's the right beginning. Look, it's a framework. Uh, obviously, the Green New Deal, as we've seen it so far, is more of a plan than it is a fully articulated set of policies. But the idea that we need to race toward uh, that goal and that we should do it in a way that enhances the economic justice and the level of economic opportunity in our country, uh, I believe that's exactly the right direction to be going in. Everybody's going to have their... Go ahead. Everybody's going to have their own twists or features they're going to add. Uh, As a mayor, I'd like to see it uh, funding more things that would help our cities become sustainable. And there are other uh, developments that are going to have to come along to uh, establish exactly how we can meet those goals. But they are the right goals, especially if you come at this from a generational perspective. You know, for me, the question of what the world is going to look like in 2054, which is when I'm going to reach the current age of the current president, that's not a theoretical question. Uh, That's a, a personal question. And uh, it's very clear that we can't go on like this. I mean, these weather extremes we're experiencing now are what we were warned about to expect in these years uh, in the 70s and 80s by science. Mm -hmm. I shudder to think about the fact that, uh, God willing, I'll be alive uh, to see the consequences in the 2050s of the predictions that are being made right now. You've said that young people don't see as much conflict between the concept of capitalism and the concept of socialism as past generations have seen. Uh, President Trump uh, has been pretty clear that he's going to try to use the idea of socialism as a point of attack against Democrats. Uh, Take a listen to what he said at the State of the Union address. Here in the United States, we are alarmed by the new calls to adopt 
socialism in our country. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. Are you worried at all that that might be an effective attack against Democrats? I think he's clinging to a rhetorical strategy that was very powerful when he was coming of age 50 years ago, but it's just a little bit different right now. I know if, if you grew up during that Cold War period, then you saw a time in politics when the word socialism could be used to end an argument. Today, I think uh, a word like that is the beginning of a debate, not the end of a debate. Look, uh, America is committed to democracy, and we are essentially a market-based economy. Um, but you, can't, you can no longer simply kill off a line of discussion about a policy uh, by saying that it's socialist. If someone my age or younger uh, is weighing a policy idea and somebody comes along and says you can't do that, it's socialist, I think our answer is going to be, okay, is it a good idea or is it not? And that word has also lost its power, especially when you think about the way it was applied to characterize, for example, the ACA, uh, 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 an idea that was the invented at the conservative yeah. The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, invented by a conservative think tank, relying on market principles, implemented first by a Republican governor, mm -hmm. and they said that was socialist. So I think the word has mostly lost its meaning and has certainly lost its uh, ability to be used as a kill switch on debate. Earlier uh, on the show, you said that you'll be President Trump's age in 2054. Uh, you're 37 years old. You're the youngest candidate in the Democratic field. If elected, you'd be the youngest president ever. President Trump is the oldest president ever elected president. You've said it's time for a, quote, new generation in American leadership. Does that inherently mean that it's time for the older generation, say politicians over 70, their time has come and gone? They shouldn't run? Well, I think there's an opportunity for different generations to come together. It's one of the things I uh, saw firsthand when I was in Iowa over the last couple of days talking to voters. Uh, the only group that was more interested in generational change than uh, the youngest voters I met uh, were the voters who were about my parents' age. And I think that shows that uh, if you're from an older generation, you care about the world that you're leaving. Uh, if you're from my generation, you're thinking about the world that we're going to continue living into. I do think that uh, those of us who are from a younger generation have a, a very personal, very direct stake. And I think uh, it's not an accident that uh, the whole country right now, in terms of our policy debate, uh, is responding to proposals put forward by a member of Congress who's even younger than I am. All right, Mayor Buttigieg, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Democrats are hailing a sweeping new proposal to combat climate change. So why is President Trump applauding their efforts on Twitter? Plus, lawmakers are working on a compromise to avoid another government shutdown. But will President Trump sign on to the deal? We'll ask the number three House Republican Conference Chair Liz Cheney next. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. President Trump is heading to the border town of El Paso tomorrow, trying to keep the focus on his border wall just days before the government is set to partially shut down again over wall funding. On Capitol Hill, lawmakers are trying to seem hopeful that they can come up with a deal that the president will agree to. The latest negotiations center around about $2 billion for border barriers. That is short of the $5.7 billion President Trump said he wanted. Joining me now to discuss this and much more, the third-ranking Republican in the House, Conference Chair Liz Cheney. The Congresswoman joins us from Casper, Wyoming. Congresswoman, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jake. Great to be with you. So uh, the federal government will partially shut down on Friday if President Trump and Congress cannot find a compromise on the president's border wall. Do you think Republicans in Congress can convince President Trump to sign off on about $2 billion for border barriers? Or are you more skeptical? Do you think we're headed for another shutdown? 
Well, I certainly uh, hope we're not headed for another shutdown. I think the president's been clear and the Republicans in the House have certainly been clear that we absolutely have got to secure the border. You know, I, I thought it was interesting when you watched the negotiations that have been going on between the, our bipartisan and, and bicameral committee. Uh, when the committee members had a chance to go visit the border, when the committee members had a chance to, to hear from uh, Border Patrol uh, agents themselves in testimony, it really made a difference, I think. And I, I think that there's there is, you know, bipartisan agreement. We got to secure the border. I think there are some members of leadership on the Democratic side, in particular, Speaker Pelosi, uh, who really is out there on her own saying things like walls are immoral and she will only allow one dollar for a wall. Uh, the American people want the border secure. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this committee will be able to come up with a proposal that we can all support, that the president can sign. Uh, but it's going to have to include funding that will allow us to secure the border and it'll have to include funding for some sort of a barrier. So but two billion dollars, theoretically, you're not agreeing right now to anything, but two billion dollars for border barriers would would be a compromise for you that you would be willing to accept theoretically. Well, you're not going to be surprised, Jake. I'm not going to negotiate about it uh, this morning on your show. Uh, I think it's going to have to be sufficient funds. Uh, through, uh, you know, an agreement, hopefully, that we can reach uh, that will uh, enable us to know that moving forward, we'll be able to, to have a wall, uh, have a barrier on those parts of the border uh, where it's really necessary. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of, of mistruth out there about this. You've seen the Democrats try to suggest that we want to build a 2,000 mile long wall. Uh, that's absolutely not the case. But what we're talking about is something that's very practical, where it's necessary, where it's needed, where our Border Patrol agents say that it will help us control and stop the, the flood of, of illegal immigrants across the border, we need to have a border wall. I want to turn to foreign policy. Take a listen to President Trump at the State of the Union address. As a candidate for president, I loudly pledged a new approach. Great nations do not fight endless wars. It is time to give our brave warriors in Syria a warm welcome home. So President Trump said he's probably going to make a formal announcement this week announcing that the U.S.-led coalition now controls 100 percent of ISIS territory in Syria. You're on the House Armed Services Committee. Why not bring the troops home? Well, I think several things. Number one, we've we've uh, done tremendous work both in Syria as well as in Afghanistan. Uh, but in Syria, the issue is not the territorial control. In Syria, the issue is whether or not we're able to ensure that ISIS doesn't reconstitute. And we've got about we've had about 2,200 special operations forces there. Uh, they've been doing crucially important work that you can only do from there, uh, providing air support, providing some artillery support, helping to work with uh, the local forces to really help ensure the defeat of ISIS. It's got to be an enduring defeat, though. And so when you've got a situation like we have now, uh, where you're, you've seen the caliphate, uh, as the president is saying, there will be this announcement that the caliphate has been 100 percent taken back. I hope that's right. Um, but but you cannot be uh, we, we can't be fooled into thinking, you know, if we just withdraw the troops now, and we come home, ISIS won't reconstitute that uh, we've got to ensure that we do everything necessary to prevent them from forming safe havens. We know that there are significant numbers of ISIS fighters still in mm -hmm. Syria today. Uh, and we, we don't want to have to go back again. I think that would come at much greater cost of lives and treasure. So this puts you uh, and your philosophy at odds with President Trump. Um, you've defined victory in the Middle East as, quote, that we don't have another 9-11, adding, quote, uh, that may require that we're there for a long time. How do you respond to the president's criticism that your approach essentially means having U.S. service members in Syria and Afghanistan indefinitely? 
You know, I think, first of all, President Trump has had tremendous success uh, across the board on a whole range of national security issues. He was absolutely right to withdraw from the Iran nuclear agreement, uh, absolutely right to withdraw, to announce that we will withdraw from the INF. Uh, he's had tremendous uh, success and has done exactly the right thing in terms of resources for the Pentagon over mm -hmm. the last two years. Uh, and so I support very much what he's done there. But I think that in the same way that we saw with President Obama, you do not end a war by withdrawing from the battlefield. And when President Obama did that and he withdrew our forces from uh, Iraq precipitously, you ended up with civil war in Syria. You ended up with the, the rise of ISIS. You ended up with the caliphate. I don't want to see us go down that path again. So I think it's very important for us to remember, you know, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda is embedded with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban will not uh, live up to any negotiated deal that we set with them. The notion that we're somehow going to have a negotiated deal um, with the Taliban that we can take their word that they won't allow al-Qaeda uh, to have safe havens again uh, is, is uh, in, in my view, irresponsible. And we've got to ensure that our forces are there based on uh, the conditions on the ground uh, and not based on, frankly, what has been Rand Paul's approach, which is, you know what, I've just decided it's too long, we're going to come home. You don't win wars that way, you don't keep the nation safe that way. I want you to take a look at something the president tweeted last night. He wrote, quote, Today Elizabeth Warren, sometimes referred to by me as Pocahontas, joined the race for president. Will she run as our first Native American presidential candidate, or has she decided that after 32 years this is not playing so well anymore? See you on the campaign trail, Liz, that word trail in all caps, an apparent reference uh, to the tragedy, the trail of tears. Just a few weeks ago, the president also made a reference to uh, wounded knee in a joking manner uh, when talking about Elizabeth Warren. You represent thousands of Native Americans in Wyoming. Do you have concerns about the president joking about these horrific tragedies? You know, I have concerns about somebody like Elizabeth Warren, Warren pretending to be a Native American. You know, you're absolutely right. I do represent, uh, you know, thousands of Native Americans here in Wyoming. And the notion that, that anybody of any political party would pretend that they were a member of a tribe or would pretend that they were Native American and would do it as she seems to have done it in order to get benefits, um, it, that is, in my view, the disgrace. And so I think, you know, she's made herself a laughingstock. Um, you know, you, I, I wonder whether or not anybody around her is saying, you know, it's, it's time to say this just isn't going to work. Because I think at this point, you know, each time she sort of tries to take one more step to show that she wasn't claiming membership in a tribe or mm -hmm. claiming that she was a Native American in order to get benefits, we see that it wasn't true. So I, I, I hear what you're saying about Elizabeth Warren, but what about the language that the president uses and the joking references to genocide against Native Americans? Look, Elizabeth Warren has made herself a laughingstock, and I don't think anybody should be surprised that, that that's been the reaction to, to her and to her continued claims. And we saw just last week uh, you know, that she, she said she was a Native American on her application for membership in at least one state bar association. You know, one wonders whether or not that's grounds for disbarment. If uh, you misrepresent yourself on your application to the bar, I'd say it probably is grounds for disbarment. So, you know, she, she's made herself a laughing stock. I think the longer that she's out there, uh, the more that people are going to be talking about this. And, and it's just it's clear that, you know, she's somebody who can't be trusted. Okay, so no comment on what the president had to say. Congresswoman Liz Cheney, thank you so much for joining us. Hope to have you back again sometime soon. Have fun in Wyoming. Thanks, Jake. Good to be with you. Saudi Arabia is denying any connection to the leak of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos' text messages to the National Enquirer. So what exactly did Bezos mean when he referred to a Saudi connection? We're going to talk to a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. House Democrats are launching hearings and investigations into the Trump administration and working with their Senate counterparts to unveil sweeping new policies on matters such as health care and climate change. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He's also a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, Senator, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to start um, with this uh, crisis uh, in Virginia with the three top officials. And specifically, I want to ask you about one that's very pressing this weekend. Lieutenant Governor Fairfax um, has called for an investigation into the allegations against him from two women, uh, citing the need for due process. He added, quote, our American values don't just work when it's convenient. They must be applied at the most difficult of times. Uh, Many Democrats have called for him to step down in light of these allegations of a sexual assault in 2004, alleged, and uh, a rape, alleged, uh, in 2000. Um, What's your standard for determining whether or not somebody should have to resign? Well, these are very serious allegations. You're talking about sexual assault and rape, and the question is whether he can continue to perform his duties while he is trying to um, litigate these very serious claims. And you know, I tend to defer to people like Tim Kaine and Mark Warner when it comes to Virginia politics. They've called on him to step down. That certainly seems to be the right move for me. Um, again, these are very serious allegations, and it's just not clear to me how he can continue to do his job uh, while he's trying to contest these claims. I guess the argument he's, he's making here is he, need, he deserves due process like anyone else deserves due process. And I just wonder what the standard is, because, you know, I don't think we've really ever had a national conversation. Uh, Obviously, it's great that the society has evolved and now we're taking accusations made by women seriously. And that didn't used to be the case. But by the same token, is it just one credible accusation? Is it more than one credible accusation? Where does due process fall into it? Uh, I, I just don't think that there's any one standard. Well, I think the nature of the allegations do matter, and these allegations are serious. One of these allegations is an allegation of rape. That's a crime that you can go to jail for for a very long time. And so I think that you have to look at the circumstances of every case. These are serious. Meanwhile, the government's just five days away from another potential government shutdown. Democrats have previously vowed not to give the president any money for any wall But there's this group of bipartisan lawmakers working on a compromise that, according to sources, could include up to $2 billion, if not more, for border barriers, uh, whatever you want to call them, a wall, border barriers. Is it fair to assume that Democrats will end up supporting at least some funding for some sort of barrier at the border at the end of the day? Well, you know, the budget bill that we passed in the Senate through committee uh, last year provided for $1.6 billion in new border security money. And, of course, members of the Senate have voted in the past for border security money, including barrier funding. I think the problem now is that we've only got about seven months left on the fiscal year. So I don't think the president can actually spend much more than $2 billion. But, of course, we're willing to compromise. Of course, we're willing to put more money into border security. I'll be interested to see what the compromise looks like before I commit to voting for it or against it. I mean, the real tragedy here, Jake, is that we should be able to do a bigger comprehensive immigration reform bill. And the president two years ago had the ability to take $25 billion dollars for border security in exchange for full protection for the dreamers and didn't take it. I hope we can have that bigger conversation sometime soon. Well, I think he would argue that it was authorized but not appropriated, but I don't want to get into the, the weeds of all that. Back in October, you and the rest of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee invoked a law that requires President Trump to determine whether or not the Saudi crown prince, MBS, was responsible uh, directly or indirectly for the death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. That deadline came and went on Friday with no response from the White House. The White House saying that the president, quote, maintains his discretion to, to, to decline to act on congressional committee's requests when appropriate. 
Your response? This isn't an informal committee request. The law requires that when the chairman and the ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee ask the president to make a finding as to a human rights violation overseas, he has to respond. He has to respond. That's what the law says. So he doesn't have an option here. Now, I understand why he doesn't want to make this determination. Uh, His intelligence services are telling him that Mohammed bin Salman was responsible. And because either of a personal relationship he has or a business relationship he has with Saudi Arabia, he is declining to make that finding to Congress. But this isn't his general executive discretion. He has to, under the law, he didn't make a determination, and he didn't. So what, so what now? Well, I, I mean, listen, I, I assume we can go to court to try to make the president comply with this law. We can raise political pressure, as we will this year, or we can just move forward with sanctions. And I think that's probably the most appropriate step. Congress doesn't have to wait for the president to fulfill his duty. We can just make a determination ourselves that Mohammed bin Salman ordered these murders, and there should be uh, some kind of penalty and repercussion for that. Speaking of murky situations with the Saudis, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos wrote an extraordinary essay on Medium this week accusing the National Enquirer parent company of trying to extort him over explicit photographs sent to his extramarital girlfriend. In that essay, Bezos refers to, quote, the Saudi angle. He seems to be suggesting, he and his team seem to be suggesting the Saudis had something to do with the National Enquirer obtaining these explicit photographs. What do you make of it? I I, I really don't know what to make of it. So I'm hoping that the Saudis had nothing to do with it. It's a very oblique reference, so it's hard for policymakers to understand. But what we do know is that um, foreign governments are constantly trying to infiltrate the American political process. And one of the reasons why we worry about President Trump not taking a stronger stand on what the Russians did in 2016 is that it seems to be an invitation for others to try to manipulate our political process in other ways. So I don't know anything about Jeff Bezos' sort of oblique claims, but I know that this is a constant problem that we have to be vigilant about. You co-sponsored a resolution outlining a Green New Deal in the Senate this week. It calls for a sweeping overhaul of the entire U.S. economy in 10 years by, quote, meeting 100% of the power demand in the United States through clean, renewable, and zero-emission energy sources. Uh, A fellow senator who caucuses with the Democrats, independent Senator Angus King of Maine, uh, as well as Obama, former uh, Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz, say they don't think that this plan is realistic. I think it's absolutely realistic, and I frankly think we need to set our sights high. I think there are a lot of people who said that it wasn't realistic for the United States to get a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s when President Kennedy initially outlined that goal. Um, But we did it. And I think we have to set our sights high. I have a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. Global warming is an existential threat to the planet. And so if we don't command this country to think big about saving uh, our nation and our world from destruction, um, then I don't think we're going to get close to meeting the mark. All right, I have a lot more questions about the Green New Deal. Hopefully you can come back uh, and talk to me either during the week or on another Sunday. Senator Murphy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jake. President Trump wasted no time attacking Elizabeth Warren over her campaign kickoff. Does that mean the president thinks Warren is the one to beat? We'll discuss next. Stay with us. a lot of courage to come forward. These are folks with a lot of uh, contemporaneous details. This is a time that I just believe it's time for him to to step down. The second allegation uh, has been corroborated. That added to the first allegation, which I personally found credible, um, leads me to, to call for his resignation. Senators Booker and Gillibrand, two 2020 Democrats in early voting states this weekend. Both of them 
responding to the scandals plaguing Democrats in Virginia, uh, many of them calling for Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax to resign. Fairfax says he isn't going anywhere, at least not yet. Let's discuss uh, with our experts here. And you were the former attorney general for the Commonwealth uh, of uh, Virginia. What's going on in your state? Top three officials, all Democrats under fire. Well, and all within a week, all of these things exploding and literally almost in two-day increments, starting with the governor, of course, with his blackface pictures, um, was what took this national. It isn't what it started it in Virginia. And then Justin Fairfax, only two days later with the first sexual assault allegation. And you, you saw two 2020 Democrat contenders there reference the second allegation. But when the first one came out, he immediately came out and was shooting at the accuser, um, rhetorically speaking, of course, yeah. And, the Washington, and using the Washington Post as a shield. And they immediately called him out on that. So he has really violated rule number one when you're in a hole, stop digging. And now he's saying, I'm not going anywhere, but tomorrow I expect Democrats to submit a resolution of impeachment in Virginia. Um, and that will begin a process that has not been used in Virginia in our lifetimes. Are you worried at all, Congresswoman, about <laughs> the effect this is having on the 2020 candidates on the Democratic Party, uh, on anything having to do with, with the, uh, the agenda that you want to put forward? Well, we need Virginians to have somebody who could lead in that position, and that's my concern. Uh, my concern. Which position? All, all, there are three, <laughs> three people yeah. under fire. So the yeah. governor, the lieutenant governor, or the well, attorney general? I thought also. you were referencing the, yeah. the lieutenant governor. And what we do need people um, in Virginia who can lead. Um, we don't want to be distracted. Look, Democrats want to talk about our agenda. As you mentioned, we want to talk about lowering prescription drug prices. We need to talk about health care and having access to care. We need to talk about climate change. So we would like to talk about those issues and certainly make sure we avert a government shutdown. Are you at all concerned, Nina, Senator Turner, about the image of impeachment proceedings against an African-American lieutenant governor uh, while the attorney general and the governor, who have both admitted dressing up in blackface, escape any consequences? Very concerned, Jake. I was going to say, I hope that the legislature starts impeachment for all three of these folks. You know, what a hell of a way to start off Black History Month. Right. Totally right. lost. Right. And, you know, I'm Black 365, but let's just say Black History Month is in February. We started off with this. Um, we're 400 years from 1619 to 2019. The first 20 Africans brought from Angola, they didn't sign up and jump on the boat or the ship themselves, brought over to this country to Jamestown, Virginia, as slaves. My message to non-black people, don't wear a black face. Look at the rainbow mosaic of the black faces in this country. That is, those are the only black faces you should be talking about. But Jake, you hit the nail on the head, the hypocrisy in terms of this governor thinking, he even weighed in on whether or not uh, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax should go. That all three of them need to go. And it is not a distraction to talk about racism in this country because it is in the DNA of this country. It's the first thing that this country was founded on, racism and bigotry. And we just got to understand that. Well, so, con Congresswoman Love, uh, uh, yeah. the attorney general himself called for the governor to resign when the governor's blackface pictures came out. Yeah, knowing that Four he had days, his own. No, which tells you he thought he was going to get away. Arrogance. Right. It is arrogant. arrogance. I agree. And four days later, he's admitting it himself, and he's still there. Contempt and arrogance. Look, there is no daylight on this issue with anyone that we've actually seen that have said these people have to go. I've always presumed, and I, continue, I will continuously say this, you are innocent until you're proven guilty, but can you govern? 
can you actually lead um, the, the state and start talking about policy issues? Now, remember, the first time that we were talking about this governor was on the policy of the uh, abortion issue, the yep. third trimester abortion issue. We've gotten away from even talking about that, and we're going into his contempt for uh, life, his contempt for people um, of color. And then now we've gone into the lieutenant governor. This is just a, which is actually a criminal um, accusation. So they have really got to just just wipe everything clean, start all over so that we can we can govern. And but let Jay, can I, add, I just want to add to what the congresswoman is saying. This is not just about people of color. I want folks to understand this. This is anti-blackness. So let's make this clear. This is anti-blackness, blackface in the mid to late uh, 19th century, 1800s, was about mocking black people, our humanity, our beauty, our culture, what we mean to this country. So this ain't a conversation about people of color. This is a conversation about anti-black racism, white supremacy in the United States of America. So Governor Ralph Northam uh, came out of hiding and uh, gave an interview to the Washington Post saying that he wants to focus on racial inequality during the rest of the time as governor. Here's what he said, quote, there are ongoing inequities to access to things like education, healthcare, mortgages, capital, entrepreneurship. I want to heal that pain and I want to make sure that all Virginians have equal opportunity. And I think I'm the person that can do that for Virginia. Too little, too late. Uh, it, no credibility. And I actually I'm offended by that. Too little, I'm offended. Too late. It's almost yeah. like let me let me fix what's going on here. So, I, you know, let me go and focus on something yes. else so that people can stop focusing on the things that I did when I was 25. Well, and and, and he wants to have his repentance as the governor of Virginia. Look, you resign yes. and you go get your own repentance and you let us continue on in Virginia with actual That's governance right. by people who legitimately ought to be in the office. Well, let me ask you a question, yes. Congresswoman, as, a, as the elected Democrat at the table. Uh, if all three of them resign, mm -hmm. uh, then I believe the Republican Speaker of the House of Delegates becomes governor. Uh, you don't want that. No, but we need to think about doing what's right and what's right for Virginians and what's right overall. I mean, look at the race issue in today's day and age with the president at the helm, who has been one of the most divisive presidents and, frankly, racist himself, is a conversation we do need to have. Um, but looking at just the line of order and saying, no, we're not going to do that because of the consequences, is not the right way to do this. And so for me, I would I do think we need to have this conversation and we should continue to have this conversation. But it has to be front and center. And we can't forget about the person who is dividing us and who himself is injecting this into the country to live up again and, and coming out again. And we haven't seen it be this bad in recent time till the president has really made this um, a race issue, whether it's about um, African-Americans. Certainly he's doing it all over the board with immigrants. But hey, we need to have this conversation. I cannot. Well, I just can't. 1984, 1980, right. Gucci, just a few days ago. This is not about President Donald Trump. This is about racism in the United States of America. Congresswoman, I hear you, but on this, we're not blaming President Trump. I'm he saying he that he has, listen, he has divided no, this country. No, let me, let me just say this. He is using it's easy. race as I am issue. not going to let, continue to let politicians use this man as the excuse to deal with racism in this country. It's been going on for far too long in the United States of America. We need some real truth and re reconciliation. Yes, President Donald Trump is a racist. There is no doubt about it. But as we have seen, Democrats 
delve in racism as well. We got to stop making this about who's a Republican, who's a right. Democrat. I want to know who's a humanitarian. That's right. I want to know who's going to stand up for people's lives, starting with black lives, because when you take care of black lives, everybody's life is taken care of. Everyone's life is taken care of. So no more about this. These three men, it had nothing to do with President Trump. What Go Lieutenant Governor Fairfax is going through don't have nothing to do with President Trump. Northam wearing blackface don't have nothing to do with Donald Trump. Harrington wearing blackface has nothing to do with what Donald Trump. What, this is about racism in the DNA of this country, and I am over it. Exactly we are right. traumatized, Jake, and we are sick of it. You know, now, what, po politicians what is, what need to stop being, playing what games. What is being said is exactly right. It's about personal responsibility for your own actions and the things that you've done. When he was 25 years old, it wasn't he couldn't blame Donald Trump for his behavior right. at 25 years old. <laughs> I mean, you can't you and have in to take school, responsibility right. for the things that you do. And well, I think that that's the problem with the Virginia governor. Is that first he said, "Oh, I'm sorry uh, that uh, yeah, that was me. I'm sorry about the picture." Then it was like, "Well, I don't really remember." And his wife is keeping him from actually moonwalking. I mean, this is a person that does not know what where the appropriate levels are. I mean, he cannot, he can't govern. So it's absolutely time for him to go um, and, and wipe the slate clean. And I appreciate, by the way, um, the representative saying that this has nothing to do with what, you know, who's next in line and, and the risk of Republicans actually taking office. This has to do with right and wrong. And this and this these are clearly well, wrong um, places. for these. I appreciate those comments as well. But and I'm not speaking to you, but they're new on the Democrat side. Ralph Northam got universal calls for resignation. When this became the whole Democrat power structure, it got really quiet. Well, there haven't until, been as many calls for Herring to resign. Until right. the second sexual assault allegation. Right. Then it broke it loose again. But if you look at that timeline, it got very quiet. And it was, we might be more accepting of racism or rape than we are of Republicans. It started to look like that They ain't telling the truth on that, Jake. I mean, I hate that, you know, mm. Fairfax has to go too. But when Northam was running in 2017, you recall, because of a labor union, he wouldn't put Fairfax's right. picture That's yeah. right. on his literature. Thanks one and all for being here. Coming up, Ivanka Trump vacuuming up breadcrumbs, a new work of performance art, getting a thumbs down from the first daughter. That's the subject of this week's State of the Cartoonian. Next. Welcome back. Pablo Picasso once said, art is a lie that makes us realize the truth. And that's the subject of this week's State of the Cartoonian. The new performance art piece in Washington, D.C., Ivanka Vacuuming, shows the first daughter cleaning up crumbs. The piece irked the real Ivanka, who tweeted, Women can choose to knock each other down or build each other up. I choose the latter. But it got us wondering what other political figures might make high art. Edvard Mook's The Scream could help former Chief of Staff John Kelly work out his rage. Or a masterwork to highlight the president's signature style, Magritte's famous bowler hat with Jerry Kushner. Perhaps American Gothic might inspire Democrats to get their message out more successfully to voters in the heartland. How many more times can we say that? He doesn't seem able to dig himself out of the hole. A rendition of Rodin's The Thinker might be appropriate for Beto O'Rourke as he ponders and ponders and ponders a potential 2020 bid. I have been thinking about running for president. Brilliant. Picasso's The Old Guitarist from his blue period could serve as a model for Joe Biden, who, if elected, would be the oldest president ever. Am I still in good shape? Am I, do I have all my faculties? Am I, am I energetic? And then there is that masterwork. The president might feel like he can't escape the gaze of the Mueller Lisa. 
Fareed Zakari is next. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.